I don't think there's anything better in the wake of tragedy um, than uh, diving into God's word um, because I believe God is always speaking to us and I believe God has uh, something that he wants to say uh, to our community today. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 1, we're going to read the entire psalm. Psalm 1. Uh, if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, uh, but I believe it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Psalm 1. This is the reading of God's word. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you've been with us uh, the past few weeks, you know that uh, our church is currently in a series called The Liturgical Life, where we are talking about the different practices and routines and rhythms that shape Jesus' life. And we're doing this series not so we can become more religious or, or be, become more spiritual. Uh, we're doing this because there was something about Jesus' way of life that produced in him this supernatural love, joy, and peace, these things that are so lacking in our lives today. There was something about Jesus' way of life that kept him rooted in the midst of so much chaos going on in the world around him that kept his eyes fixed on the most important things in a sea of urgent things that were constantly vying for his attention. And so when Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full, he's saying this life that I have is available to you. So come follow me. Come see it for yourself. Come and be my apprentice. The word disciple that we use all the time in the church is just another word for apprentice. And if you've ever apprenticed under someone, you know that apprenticing under someone is not just acquiring more head knowledge or acquiring more information. It's about adopting a lifestyle. It's about adopting that person's habits, routines. It's about organizing your entire life in a certain way. When Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and he died a sacrificial death and he rose again three days later, he grafted us into a new family. And this family operates with a completely different set of values, but you and I have to learn how to live as part of this family. You and I have to learn how to live in the freedom that is now ours by faith. We have to learn how to live as people who are deeply loved and cared for in these practices help us do that. So we've now, in week one, looked at the practice of silence and solitude. Last week, DC preached on simplicity. And today we're going to talk about what is probably the most familiar practice, the practice of reading scripture. Okay, the practice of reading scripture. Outside of prayer, uh, which we're going to talk about next week, there is nothing that people connect more to being a Christian than reading a Bible. Okay, if you are here and you're not a believer, we're so glad you could join us. Uh, we want to welcome you, and I'm sure that for you, those two go hand in hand. You, it's the, the image of a Christian is someone who walks around 
with a Bible. And, you know, one of the things that you have to recognize is as, as much as things have changed about the church over the centuries, you know, the style of worship, the size of our gatherings, the places people meet up, the technology that's used, the one thing that has not changed is the centrality of Scripture. You and I are part of a holy community that for 3,000 years has been shaped by the words inside this book. And yet, as central as the Bible is to the Christian tradition, I would say there is also no piece of literature that has been more weaponized, more misunderstood, and more exploited. Not only has this book been the source of so much division and hostility within Christendom itself, now with tens of thousands of denominations all over the world claiming that their reading and interpretation of the Bible is the correct one, but you know that this, wor this book has also been at the center of so many of the culture wars that continue to tear our nation apart. The same Bible quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to explain why all human beings are created with inherent dignity, value, and respect is the same Bible that many people use to justify chattel slavery, that many use to justify Jim Crow segregation. It goes without saying that this is no ordinary book. This book contains unspeakable power that, if not handled correctly, can inflict tremendous harm. But if received the way it was meant to be received, it's a book that can breathe new life into dry bones. It's a book that can turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It's a book that can revive weary souls. On the first page of this book, we read the words, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke and the entire universe came to be. And I want you to think about the implications of that. The book that you hold in your hands or the book that is now on your phones. The power of God's spoken word. What it could do in our lives and in the world if we just realize this power that is readily available and accessible to all of us at our fingertips. To put that into perspective... There are 20 million Bibles sold every year. Um, even with the advent of smartphones and new Bible apps, it is still the best-selling book of all time. And this is a number that continues to grow. A quarter of all newly printed Bibles are sold in the U.S. And at least one Bible is found in 9 out of 10 American homes. 9 out of 10. 90% of American homes. Now, interestingly enough, only 11% of those who have a Bible have read it from beginning to end. Okay? Startling statistic. And, and I get it. The Bible is long. These pages are thin. It can be very boring at times. It's confusing. It's written, written in a context that's completely different from our culture. And yet, isn't it interesting how many people have banked their entire life on a book they've never read? I just find that wild. People who say this book informs everything they believe about the world. That informs what's going to happen to their loved ones after they die. That informs how they vote, how they raise their kids, how they resolve conflict, and yet who've never taken the time to read it. And it's not meant to be a guilt trip. 
it's a reality check. If we're honest, most of us have spent more time listening to people like me talk about what the Bible has to say than we have spent actually reading it for ourselves. We're basically all like on Yelp reviews, like reading everything there is to read about what other people have to say about a restaurant without ever going to the restaurant ourselves. This is our relationship with the Bible. To be honest, every week I get up here to preach God's word and I feel a little strange because I know that no matter how articulate I am, there's no way what I say is going to be better than the pure, unadulterated word of God. And so I come up here and I try to give illustrations and try to make the Bible fun and interesting. Sometimes I just want to come up here and read a chapter in its entirety and call it a day. Obviously, I still want a job. And I believe in the importance of preaching. And I think these resources and podcasts and talks are so important. They help us interpret and maybe better understand this text. But there is absolutely no replacement for experiencing the word for ourselves. And today I'd like to make the case that getting the words of this book into our hearts and minds just might be the most important decision you and I make in our lives. Psalm 1 sets the tone for the entire book of Psalms. And it makes a sharp contrast between two kinds of people, two ways of life, the way of blessedness and the way of wickedness. The psalmist says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And I love all the words that are used there are action words. Walk, stand, sit. It's this reminder that following Jesus is not a one-time decision that you make, but something you practice every day. It's actively participating in a way of life. And the psalmist says, the one thing that marks the life of a blessed person is not financial stability, it's not a husband or wife, it's not fame, it's that he or she delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And he goes on to say that this person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers but he says those whose delight is not in the law of the lord those who do not meditate on this law day and night he says they are like chaff that the wind blows away one way of life leads to blessing and the other way of life leads to destruction now there's so much i could say about the bible how it was put together its origins uh, we're not going to do that today that's like a class in and of itself my hope today is simply to help us to see what the Bible is at its core and how bringing this book to bear on our lives can transform us from the inside out so that you and I too can be like trees planted by streams of water, firmly rooted even when the whole world feels like it's falling apart. Wouldn't we love to have something like that, especially in a time like this, especially on a morning like this? Now, before I get to what the Bible is, let me just say a few words about what the Bible is not, okay? Because I would say that it's because people have turned the Bible into something it was never meant to be. Uh, that's precisely the reason why it has been the source of so much division and trauma. Number one, the Bible is not a science or history textbook. If you are looking for exact measurements 
or exact specifics on how the world came to be and how, how and why the world works the way it does, you're not going to find it in the Bible because that's not what it was meant to be. The Bible is also not a rule book for how to live a good life. Are there commands and principles and words of wisdom? Absolutely. But that is not what the Bible primarily is. The Bible is also not a place you go for answers to all your questions. If you're trying to figure out if you should marry the person you're dating, you're not going to find it in the Bible. You're not going to find whether or not you should pursue this career path or that career path. You're not going to find whether or not you should live in L.A. or in New York. That's just not what the Bible is. Usually, in fact, when you read the Bible, you actually walk away with more questions than you do answers. But here's what the Bible is. The Bible, above all things, is a story. It's a story about God and his unstoppable love for humanity revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible is. Everything in this book, this entire collection of documents that are diverse culturally, historically, theologically, have all been brought together for one singular purpose, to be a massive signpost that points to Jesus. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project uses the analogy of a family quilt that has fabric pieces that come from many generations of the family, and every piece doesn't come from the same person or time. And, and when you look at each piece separately, sometimes it doesn't quite make sense, but they're arranged together to be one unified form of communication, conveying a singular story, in this case, a story about Jesus. This is why in John 1, which we read as our call to worship, when we read the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what John is saying is that this word is revealed in the person of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the culmination and embodiment of this entire story. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. There's a section in Luke 4 where Jesus is at the synagogue. And he walks into a worship service just like this. And they hand him a scroll. And they're reading. And he reads this passage from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and this, is a, this is a passage from the book of Isaiah, and everyone's eyes are on him. You can hear a pin drop in the room. He sits down, he closes the scroll up, and he says, the scriptures are fulfilled on this day. And what he's saying is that everything the scriptures are talking about is me. I am the fulfillment of the word of God. I am the one to whom the scriptures are pointing. So to meditate on God's word day and night is not talking about a religious activity. It's talking about a relationship with the one whom this entire book is about. Imagine if you had 24-7 access to someone you could go to with all of your fears and your anxieties Someone who you knew could comfort you and challenge you. Someone who could correct you. Someone you could trust to steer you in the right direction. Someone who never changes. Every time you open up the word, you are encountering the living Christ. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible is not a stagnant piece of literature. It is a person who is alive and active, whose words cut through all the noise, quieting every other voice that tries to pull us away from God and his kingdom. I want you to take a moment and think, think about the words that have shaped you as a person. Think about the words that have shaped your life. Maybe it's something you heard or read growing up. Maybe it's something that was said to you by a parent or mentor figure. They say the average person hears 20 to 30,000 words every day. And whether we recognize it or not, those words are all doing something to us. They're having an effect on us. Some of us are in the very professions we're in today because one day someone you trust said to you, you know what, I could, I could see you as an occupational therapist. I could totally see you in that in that line of work. Some of us, we are where we are in life, not realizing that we're still trying to prove someone wrong. Someone who told us that we would never amount to anything in our life, and we've dictated our entire lives around that one statement. In this sense, words are powerful because they dictate reality. Words have a way of reverberating across generations and altering our trajectories of life. Parents, not to scare you, but what you say to your children matter. The words that you say to your children today will have reverberating impacts on their life tomorrow. I know because I got to counsel everyone now about this stuff. And a lot of times it comes back to one thing their parent, their sibling, their mentor figure, an authority figure in their life, a pastor said to them. Words matter. They profoundly shape the way we see ourselves in the world. If your entire life you have, been, you have heard the same thing said about you, that you're this and you're that, you're this type of person. If your entire life you've always been the irresponsible one in the family, you've always been the abrasive one in your group of friends, that's going to do something to you. Because we don't just consume words. We use those words to make meaning of our lives because human beings are meaning-making machines. That's what we do. We assign meaning to everything that happens to us. And so we take all these words we're hearing and we turn them into a story about ourselves and about the world we live in, a story about what ultimately, ultimate reality looks like. For some of us, the story we tell ourselves is that things should always go our way because we're smart, we're beautiful, and we come from a good family, which is why we lose our minds when something doesn't go our way because it doesn't go with the story we've been telling ourselves. For some of us, we believe in the story we tell ourselves is that nothing will ever go our way. That bad things just always tend to happen to us. And so we walk into every situation assuming the worst case scenario. Okay? Yesterday, our Eagles were up 28-0 at halftime. And there was a part of me that still thought they could lose this. <laughs> because the story as a 
Philadelphia sports fan that has become ingrained in your mind is that somehow they find a way to lose. Okay? This is what words do. And the scary thing is, more and more our lives are increasingly inundated with words. In 2017, scientists attempted to measure the amount of information that enters the human brain and found that an average person living today has to process about 74 gigabytes of information a day. Okay, to put that into perspective, that's about 16 movies worth of words, images, and data that we have to process every day. And to put that into perspective, 500 years ago, 74 gigabytes of information would be what a highly educated person consumed in a lifetime. We consume that in one day. It's a lot of words. So it's no wonder the world looks the way it looks today. Because you have half the country downloading 74 gigabytes off Fox News, half the country downloading 74 gigabytes off CNN, and they're just fighting each other. And these words, as we internalize them, will shape the way we see ourselves and the world. They will either hold us hostage or set us free. And what Psalm 1 reminds us is that these words we choose to internalize will either lead to a life of blessing or a life of destruction. If Satan is, as the Bible says, a father of lies, the way he will attempt to pull you away from God and his purposes in your life will be through words. Words that reinforce lies the lie that God can't be trusted, the lie that we're not safe, that we're not worthy, that we're not accepted. And the only way that we can combat these lies is with the truth. The only way to pull our hearts out of the captivity of ideology, of the captivity of all the words that are thrown at us every day is by filling our hearts and our minds with different words that tell a different story. You know, I follow the account, Humans of New York. Love that account. And there's a story in there about a woman named Karen Richardson who was diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. And she had three young kids that she knew she was going to be leaving behind. And so she recorded uh, a series of videos for all the big moments in her kids' lives. Graduation, 21st birthday, wedding, first child, and one of the daughters wrote um, for the account and wrote about these videos that became so precious to her because it was a way for her to hear her mother's voice even after she was gone. Because she knew in those important, pivotal moments in her life, the person she would look for is her mom. And in each video, every video started with some kind of greeting, then a word of congratulations on that stage of life. And then she would tell her daughter how sad she was that she couldn't enjoy this stage of life with her. And then she'd give her personalized advice. She'd say, I know you struggle with X, Y, and Z, so always remember this. You're an adult now, so always remember this. And when she had her first daughter, she and her husband watched the video her mom had made her for that moment. And in it, her mom talked about what it was like to raise her, where she struggled and where she excelled. And she ended by saying, love and encourage your babies. They will grow up so quickly, so hug them and pray for them. 
And these words were like a lifeline to this woman. She said, I needed to hear my mother's voice and I needed to hear what she had to say to me. This is what the word of God is for us. It's our lifeline. Rich Viotis, who is a pastor out in New York, says all the words in the Bible, there's a lot of them, and a lot of confusing words, a lot of hard names uh, that you can't pronounce, that I can't even pronounce, but he says all the words in the Bible could be summarized in four phrases repeated throughout its pages. I love you, I'm with you, do not be afraid, and you can come home. I love you, I'm with you, do not be afraid, you can come home. Imagine if you started and ended each day with one of those reminders. I love you, I'm with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. Knowing that your entire day you were going to hear the opposite. Imagine if our lives were filled with these signposts. It would drastically change how we experience every season and stage of life. Imagine you just lost your job. You have one month worth of savings left and you have no idea what you're going to do after that month. Imagine if the first words on your mind were from Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. What if that was the story you told yourself? Maybe you haven't had much luck on the online dating apps. And you're starting to wonder, is there something deficient about me? And the enemy just wants to have a field day with you. But what if the first words on your mind were from Psalm 139? For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What if at the end of the day you were exhausted, you're burnt out, and everyone wants you to hold the weight of the world on your shoulders? And every time you, you want some relief, there's something, some messaging that says it's still not enough. You got to do more. There's more you have to achieve. There's more you have to accomplish. You need to be better. Imagine if you heard the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It would change the way we move through the world. It would change the way we think about ourselves and our lives. Jesus' mind was drenched in Scripture, so much so that in every situation and circumstance, Scripture was always the first thing on his lips. It gave him the power to face anything and everything in this life. At his lowest moment, as he hung naked, humiliated, and alone on a cross, you know what words he yelled out? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those aren't just any words. They're scripture. They're words from Psalm 22. In the lowest moment, in the darkest valley, he had words to say because his mind was saturated in scripture. It shows us that the Bible is not just full of empty platitudes that make us feel good. They give us language for the darkest moments of our lives, to express our deepest pain and grief. Jesus on the cross wasn't up there being religious. 
He wasn't up there trying to show everyone how holy he was. The word of God had so deeply penetrated his heart that they just spilled out of him. When all of life became utterly dark and heaven became silent, Jesus clung with all his might to the one thing he had left, the word of God. What can I say in this moment? He had the word of God. And so how do we get this practice into our lives so that we too, like Jesus, can be like a tree planted by streams of water? I know that for many of us who grew up in the church, anytime you talk about reading the Bible, uh, it can bring with it a degree of guilt and shame, right? I remember my Sunday school teachers, like, memorize it, Jason. Memorize, right? And, um, you know, it was something that was drilled into you, that's something you felt you had to do as a Christian. And I would say, with all of these practices, show yourselves grace. Find a rhythm that works for you. There's no right way to read scripture. I mean, the beauty of the world we live in today is that there's no shortage of Bible apps, no shortage of Bible reading plans available to you currently. I am using one in 2023 by the Bible Project. It's something you can download on your phone. I love it because um, you read these large swaths of scripture, but before you read each chunk, there's like a video that kind of frames what you're about to read and frames it in the larger meta narrative of scripture. Uh, some people like to read very small snippets slowly and prayerfully. That's fine too. Um, something that I started doing a few years ago was actually listening to scripture because I realized that I think for a lot of us here in the West, the moment we have to open a book and start to read it, everything starts to feel very academic or scholastic. And so maybe for you, like on your way to work, just using Bible.com and having it read back to you, maybe that's what you need to do. I would recommend that. Okay, I mean, 50, you know, for the first 1,500 years of the Christian church, nobody read the Bible because they didn't have the Gutenberg printing press. Everyone listened to it. And I think maybe, you know, again, because we live in a very rational society, we, we like to approach everything as something we have to, like, study and learn, and that can kind of be triggering for many of us. And so whatever works for you, the bottom line is that we need to get these words into our hearts and our minds. We have to do it if we want to survive in this broken world. Hearing words from this book one day a week on a Sunday is going to do nothing when you think about the barrage of words and content that you're inundated with on a daily basis. We have to meditate on God's word day and night. You know, this morning, um, like many of you, I, I woke up to a stream of words, a stream of headlines about the shooting in Monterey Park, and the words themselves were like daggers. 10 dead, mass shooting, Monterey Park, Lunar New Year celebration, over and over again. And my mind went to a dark place because these words are all too familiar. These are words that, has, that have haunted us for years. And whether we want to admit it or not, they've done something to us. We can't say that they haven't. They have painted a certain reality about the world we live in and the world our kids are growing up in. A reality where the oppressors always win and innocent lives always die. And then I opened up Psalm 10 
It's the same psalm I opened up after George Floyd. It's the same psalm I opened up after the Atlanta massacre. And the first words on the page were, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? They perfectly captured everything my heart was feeling. And so the way I want to close today is by reading this psalm for us in its entirety. And I'm going to invite us to close our eyes now. Take a few deep breaths. And my hope and my prayer is that scripture will give us language for whatever it is we're feeling right now. And I hope that in this opportunity, you will see the power of Scripture, the power of what these words can do for our lives. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and you take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror.
Lord, thank you for your word. That reminds us that we don't have to be held hostage to the stories we have told ourselves, to the stories that our news feed seem to paint about the world that we live in. And on a morning like today, we throw ourselves on the promises in this word again, knowing that when all things around us feel like they're standing on shaky ground, that we can stand on your unshakable, unchanging word. We thank you for who you are, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.